Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day, and we thank you for allowing us this time to wake up and receive the life that you give to us each and every day and the new mercies that you give to us and the ability to come to church and hear from your word and be with other believers and be encouraged and strengthened in our daily pilgrimage as we wait for the day when you will make all things right and you will bring your heaven down to earth. So we pray, Lord, as we study the book of Galatians more today, that you would be with us and that you would allow us to be encouraged and edified and grow. In your son's name we ask. Amen. Well, thank you all for coming to the second week as we look at the book of Galatians with the topic, What is the Gospel? Uh, here's, I, I wrote down just a brief outline of the book just as we kind of go through it. Um, today we'll be talking about just the introduction to the letter and then Paul goes into a defense of his ministry and then he brings in a theological defense of the gospel and then he just shows how it unpacks and really how it gets to the nitty-gritty of life. Um, so as a brief overview, hello, a brief overview of what we had last week, we just mentioned some of the historical background that Paul had written this, probably one of the very first letters that he had written and it was 15 to 20 years after Christ's death. So it was very quick, very soon after that time period that Paul had written this, and he was addressing a specific problem. If you guys remember the, the, the group that we talked about, the Judaizers. Does anyone remember what the Judaizers were trying to say and were trying to do from last week? Yes, so circumcision and following a lot of the Mosaic rituals and laws were something that you had to do in order to be a part of the community of Christians, to be in the covenant of community of of the believers. And so that was something that they were doing, and, and they weren't necessarily thinking that they were rejecting the gospel or rejecting Christ, but they thought that they had to add that to be really sold out followers of Jesus. And Paul is going to come in and say, well, then that's just a complete, maybe you might not realize it, but that's a complete reversal of the gospel itself. So that was what we briefly talked about yesterday and what, what Paul meant, or last Sunday, what Paul meant by the works of the law and how those things were infecting their minds and their very lives and their unity as a church and altering how they even lived the Christian faith. So Paul says, sees this as a huge problem. So if you want to turn to Galatians 1, we're going to read verses 1 through 9. Galatians 1, verses 1 through 9. Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead and all the brothers who are with me, to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from this present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven 
should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say it again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. So in most letters to the churches, Paul usually follows his greeting or the salutation or that that greeting section with a paragraph of thanksgiving, appreciation, or just showing how much he loves this a church and the lives of the people in that church who have blessed him and who have been blessed by the by the gospel. But news has reached Paul that something else has happened. And so instead of going into those things, what do we see? He instantly, in verse 6, he goes into his astonishment. He goes and he just expresses himself, and he gets just right into the heart of what's bothering him. And it's, a, it's, it's something that is very unique in all of Paul's letters. Um, so what are some of the words, as we, as we read that, that stood out to you that describes maybe Paul's feelings? What was his attitude as we, look, as we looked through that? If anything, any of the words stood out to you? Astonishment? How do you think he, how do you think he feels and how he comes off on this? Do you think that, like, so he's astonished, it only, but it almost also sounds like he's, he's angry as he's writing this, and he's just bringing out the guns, and he's, he's not pulling any punches, and it almost sounds like he's just being hyperbolic. He's like, you guys are just completely deserting Christ. Like, that's just like, that's just not something that you hear your pastor come up and tell you to say every day. I mean, if you did, you'd be kind of freaked out. Um, but this is what he's starting with. Um, so Paul is first astonished in, in verse 6, and he's probably really anxious and worried about this church. Um, they are taking hold of a gospel that really isn't the gospel. And so they are in enormous danger. They're in this confusion as we read in this section. And then Paul also seems angry. And his language, as we said, is, is really strong here. He's angry at these, at these people who are misleading the people that he had just himself probably brought to Christ. Could you imagine someone that you were discipling or maybe one of your children or anyone in your family that you had worked so hard at teaching them something and then somebody is coming along and like showing them a totally different way? Um, for parents, what, it's, it's like someone who is watching your kids and after you just like, you spend months trying to train them on something and they just come along and they just like totally ruin their diet. Or they just come along and they totally just tell them a whole new way of, of interacting with authority. And now you have to like come in and totally clean up the mess that that person just made. Now that's, that's what Paul is feeling. He's like a father to these Christians. And someone is just coming in and throwing a wrench in everything that he said. Um, so he's angry at these people who are trying to pervert the gospel. And then he's angry at the Galatians themselves. He says, like, how can you quickly desert the God who's called you? That they're personally 
in many ways, turning their backs on God. Um, We saw in the introduction last week that what caused this great concern was that these Gentile Christians were being taught by these teachers, these teachers of the law, these Jewish Christians who probably knew the Old Testament really well. Um, Could you imagine someone coming in and they just know their Bibles really well because the New Testament hadn't been written, right? This is Paul writing this probably one of the first letters and, and these Old Testament passages were all that the Bible had, all, all the Bible they had. And so these Gentiles were new Christians, new converts, and these people were coming in who knew the Bible really well. And they were saying, yeah, these things are still, these Old Testament rituals, this circumcision, these things are still very much a part of what you need to be a part of God's covenant community and family. Um, and so it, did, it probably didn't seem to them like a radical departure from what Paul had taught. So you could imagine you're, you're really trying hard at this new Christian thing, and they're really trying hard to be a part of the faith, and you get this new book, on, this how-to book, and it seems to be liberating. It seems to be something that's really making you have stride in your Christian life that's helping you conquer sin in your life, that's maybe helping you conquer and, and, and really live life with meaning. And, and then the Apostle Paul comes along and says, you need to throw that out. It could be kind of devastating. Um, this, this is what is happening. Um, Paul is coming in and saying, this is an absolute repudiation of everything that I've been telling you. And it's like he's coming in and saying, you know, we often think that as Christians, it's our sins that push us away from God, right? That's, that's what we think, and that's what we're constantly battling. But as we will see, it's, it's actually our own attempts at religious devotion, our own attempts of doing things that God doesn't command that push us away from God. That's the kind of the radical thing he's kind of coming in and saying. It's like it's it's their attempts at pleasing God through through these things that's pushing them away from God. And anything that that undermines Christ and the centrality of what he's done, the best even with the best of intentions, he's saying that is what's pushing you away from the Lord. Um so you can imagine how, how radical that is and how they might have received that. But if we believe what, what Paul believed about the gospel, then his attitude, we, we can see that's really justifiable. Um, if the Galatians are turning their backs on God and the gospel, then their condition is really dangerous. Their condition is really dangerous. And so Paul's anxiety and his anger in this, as he expresses it, is like like a loving parent or a friend who sees their child or companion going completely astray, running right into oncoming traffic. And that's what he's seeing. He's seeing them, they're running right into oncoming traffic, and they think that it's like, oh, it's a shortcut. You know, it's, it's just the best way to do it. 
Um, and his, 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 he's motivated by his love for them. He's motivated by his love for them. And he's not just saying this out of arrogance or because he, he's an apostle and he has the authority. Um, so Paul calls himself an apostle. I think that we may have different understandings or conceptions of what that term is, but as we'll see how, how important that is to the letter itself, that he has to defend what it means for him to be an apostle. Um, so as we look at verses 1 through 2, if you want to look there again, what are, what are some of the things that he's saying about who he is? What can we learn from what it means to be an apostle in these verses? Yes. Yes. Yes, he received it not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ, from God, the Father. Um, And then if you want to look at verses 8 through 9, what do we see? He's also been given, he's not only been sent by God, but he also has a specific message. So those are the two things, is that his specific sending is from God with a specific message, right? And so he's sent with divine authority. And the, the word apostle itself means the one that has sent, um, and Paul uses this interesting way of saying it, that he's not from men nor by a man that shows the uniqueness of the first apostles. Um, today, we, we have pastors and elders and teachers and evangelists who, who, in, who are called to the ministry by God, by the Holy Spirit, and that's that their ultimate thing is that they are receiving their call from Jesus himself, Um, but they are receiving that by man. So it's it's not from men, but it is by them. And the word by can mean through. So ministers, they ultimately receive their call from God, but it's done through or by God other men and elders and teachers and through other ministers and through the election of a church um, and so on. But Paul is saying something a lot different. He's saying that it's not only from God himself, but, it w- but nobody came and laid hands on him. No, come, nobody came and elected him to do that. That it was, he was commissioned directly by Jesus himself the risen Lord. Um, which is why I think he mentions the resurrection right there. That his, his being an apostle is directly connected to, being, to seeing Jesus himself raised from the dead. So that sets him apart. That makes him an apostle in, some, in a way that's so unique that nobody today can claim that. Um, but then also, as we said, that he also has a specific message that it's the gospel. Paul, in his divine teaching, is this, he's, he's saying that this 
is the standard for everything. This is the benchmark for true orthodox teaching. And if it doesn't meet, meet this, he's saying that's heretical. That's outside the Christian faith. Um, if anyone, he says, is preaching a different gospel than the one that you accepted from me, he basically says, let him be eternally condemned. Um, and we will look at that more below. But it's clear that, that not even an apostle can alter the message. I think that's the even more crazy thing, is that the message itself trumps the apostle, as we will see. He says, even if we come and send another message, you're supposed to take me by the, my pants and kick me out. <laughs> right in, in the butt and kick me out of here. That's what he basically says. Like He says, we. So he puts himself under this divine message. That's pretty radical. That's like no teacher on earth, not a single one, has the authority, not even the apostle himself, has ultimate authority in themselves. It's all derived from this message. And Paul himself, in his most angry section of this letter, is saying, even if I do this, you need to reject me. Um, and so his message is not the result of him going out into the wilderness and coming to some divine revelation like through meditation, like a, like a Buddha. And he's just coming within himself and finding that message. Nor is it something that his research or reflection or his own wisdom and education brought him to. Like he was probably one of the top students and Pharisees of the day with the best education of the, the Greco-Roman world, all the wisdom of that world, as well as the Jewish understanding of the Old Testament, he had the best education. He was probably one of the top people around there in the world. But all of that, if you remember his conversion in, in the book of Acts, all of that could not help him receive the gospel. Isn't that crazy? Jesus himself had to throw him from the horse and radically convert him in order to receive this. Um, he cannot change the message of the gospel. Now, I think it's important just to stop and, and actually think about what the word gospel is. Um, who knows what the word gospel means? Because this will help us like even figure out a little bit about it. Good news. Good news, yes. So the word gospel means good news. And it's specifically taken from the ancient world's understanding of the military. It's specifically taken from warfare and conquest. That there were, that a messenger would go out and they would see what happened at the battlefield. They would see what happened in this great struggle between nations. And they would run back to their home city and let them know. And so the word good news, this gospel, is derived from that. And if, if, and Paul later on in one of his other epistles in Romans, he quotes the book of Isaiah. It's like, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring the gospel, the good news. 
And that's just kind of like actually shows you what the nature of the message was. So they would see what happened in this great battle, and just by the way that they were running, you could tell if it was good news or not. You could just you could see their feet, and you're like, they're skipping and they're happy because they know that their city's okay. You know, like they 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 were just doing an Irish jig as they were running home, and everyone was just like. Wow, how beautiful are the feet of those who proclaim the gospel of peace, this good news of peace that has happened. And, and Paul and the whole Bible is using that term for what has happened in Christ. So they are, Paul is an ambassador. He's, he's someone who has received this good news from heaven, from Jesus, and he has no authority to change that. Could you imagine an ambassador of the United States going and starting, starting and going to China and changing policy? That would be, that'd be crazy. Like, no, all an ambassador can do is deliver the president's terms. All that an ambassador can do is go and say, this is the declaration of how we're doing things. You know, they, they can talk about things, plan things out, but ultimately they have no authority to change this message. And so the Apostle Paul is like what that is. He himself is, is saying that this good news is over me. It's an authority over me, and no one can change that. Once we've received this, it's objective. It's a fact that I'm announcing to you. It's not something that's coming up within you through meditation and, or, or, you know, just feeling good and having positive experiences, nor is it something that other teachers can come in and, and distort. Does that make sense? So the good news of this gospel is this thing that can't be changed. Um, we can change to it. All we can do is receive that news like as a city and just like that just changes everything. Um, the victory in Europe, that whole victory, then before the effect of that happened, even came into the world, everyone just bursts out in celebration and joy and thanksgiving after the world war. Uh, it's the same exact thing. Um, that's what the good news message is. Um, and so that good news, he even briefly describes in these, in these beginning chap, in these beginning verses. Um, what are some of the things that you can see in, in verses 1 through 9 that, that he actually even hints at what the gospel is? So there's some clues that he even gives in this section. Mm-hmm. He gave himself for us. So, first and foremost, like this gospel message he's saying, is this big rescue. It's this rescue operation. Um, a lot of religions in the ancient world, even today, they don't primarily teach that Christianity is about this divine rescue. Um, you know, Jesus, of course, was a great teacher, and he shows us 
a new way of living, a new way to be human, and a new way of existence. But when Paul gives here a nutshell version of Jesus' ministry, the teaching is, is secondary. It's primarily about this divine rescue mission that Jesus had to come down from heaven to, to accomplish. Um, and so we learn that we, we even learn about our own condition, that Jesus had to come down and rescue us. He had to give himself for us because of our own spiritual inability. Um, the, the Judaizers were coming in and they were saying, you, this, this is within your ability. You just need to follow these ceremonial laws and you will be able to come to God. And Paul is saying, no, this is all about divine rescue. It's a divine rescue operation where he has to, he has to fly in and just land and take us out of the burning building that we're in. Um, and we also learn in this passage, as Anna mentioned, like what Jesus did, like what he had to do to do that. And that was that he gave himself. Um, that this was a substitution. That the passage literally means that when it says for, that he gave himself for us, for our sins, it's literally on behalf of or in the place of. So he did this in the place of us um, in verse 4, which means that it's a substitution. It's a sacrifice that he gave himself for us. And that is why the gospel was, was so revolutionary in the ancient world as it was today. Um, Christ's death was a substitution done in our place, on our behalf. It wasn't merely something that, that just like cleaned the slate and now we just have to really get going and really start making ourselves acceptable in God's sight. It wasn't just this general sacrifice to make an angry God stop being so angry and just be like, okay, you know, you love to get angry and just like, so let's, let's just appease you. No, it was, it was God coming Himself in our place. Um, he's not just buying us a second chance. He, he did everything that we needed to do but failed to do. And so if Jesus paid our death, paid for our sins with His death on our behalf, then we can never fall back into condemnation. Um, that once that, that payment has been paid for, there's nothing that can then move us out of this category of accepted and loved and justified in my sight. Um, and then we also see in verse 1 that it was what the Father also did. So this wasn't just Jesus making us acceptable to the Father, but this was actually part of God's entire plan. This was God's mission, that the Father Himself was a part of this and He raised Jesus from the dead. Um, and then He's able to give us grace and peace in verse 3. That's the very victory that, that Christ won and achieved for us. Um, 
And then we learn why, why God did it. Uh, that in verse 4 and 5, He gave Himself for our sins to deliver us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. Why? To, to, him, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. That, I think that is really radical. Like Paul just packs so much in this section. It is God's absolute glory to save you. It's not this secondary thing. It, your salvation and your very good and well-being is God's glory. That's just amazing. Like This is His will. It's His will to save us. It's His will to send His Son for us. It was His love that compelled Him to satisfy His own justice because it would be, our, it would be His glory for us to be with Him forever. That's, that's the heart of God. It was the will of God our Father to do that. That's just remarkable. Like Paul just packs that in right in the introduction. Um, with that as, as, as just the instant backdrop of what Paul is saying, you can see why he got so pissed and so angry. It's like anything that intrudes upon that is ultimately saying, yeah, you know, God really doesn't have what it is within him to, to, to actually carry this out. God can't even carry this out. We have to add to that. And so that takes away from God's glory. That takes away from Christ's perfect work. Um, so any change to that, Paul is saying, it makes this good news that he's just declaring null and void. Um, why do you think that is? Why, why, is it, why is it such a radical either-or kind of thing? Just from what we've talked about. like Why does it seem like it's either Paul's message or my way or the highway kind of thing? Um, Yes. Yeah. Right. 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 So all those things, anything that we think can make us more holy or more clean or get rid of our guilt and shame. Because I think a lot of this has to do with like our shame. Like We're constantly looking for things that make us not feel so bad, right? Like That's just the constant struggle is that we are, we, when we sin or we don't do our devotions or we don't go to church or something, that we're, we're constantly filled with shame. And so you can, it's, it's very easy for us to, to do what the Galatians were doing and try to counteract that shame by just doing more. And Paul is saying, no, we have to even look to Christ not only for our guilt, not only for 
paying the penalty to get into communion with God, but how we deal with our daily shame, how we deal with our daily guilt. Um, And anything that takes away from that is undermining Paul's understanding of grace in the gospel. Um, In verse 6, we read that he said that we are called in the grace of Christ. So this means that God has called us. It was his call of this good news gospel message that awakens us. We didn't call him up and ask for you know, the hotline that we're in this desperate situation and we need divine intervention. We didn't even know that we needed this help. Um, God accepts us right away because of the merit of Christ. And that's the whole order of the gospel that matters. God accepts us and then we follow Him. Um, God accepts us and calls us and He gives us the very faith to receive Him and follow after Him. All other religious systems in this world are the opposite. And that's how we're bent. That's just like we are bent, we are wired for law. We're wired for law-keeping. We are, we are curved in on ourselves. As we said last week, we're navel-gazers. We're, we're, we're selfish and self-centered, thinking that we have to do this. And the Galatians, were suge- people were suggesting to them that you simply add these ceremonial laws to Christ. And they weren't, they weren't suggesting a massive revision of the gospel in their minds. They weren't intending that. But Paul is saying it is a complete reversal. That in verse 7, he says that it, it distorts the gospel. Another, another way of translating that is that it, it perverts or literally reverses. Like it, It's not only just distorting it, it literally is reversing the gospel order. And I think that's important as we think about it. Um, anything that we're adding to Christ, Christ plus something, um, is not only just distorting it, it's not only just messing it up, but it's reversing it, Paul says. It's reversing the order that is a different gospel, as he says in verse 7. And he, and he says that's no gospel at all. That's not good news. It's not good news at all if staying in communion and fellowship with God is based on our continuing merit. Because we would fall a thousand times a day if that, were, if that were the case. To change the gospel in the little, littlest amount is to enter into this no-gospel category. Um, the, the reformer Martin Luther had this great way of saying that, that there is no middle ground between Christ's righteousness, the Christian's righteousness, and works righteousness. There's no other alternative to Christian righteousness but works righteousness. If you don't build your confidence on the work of Christ, you have to build it on your own work. And that's the, that's the, the struggle 
That's the problem that he's instantly saying is reversing the gospel message. Um, so we talked about this a little bit last week, but what are some of the ways that you think today that this happens? What, do, what are some of the ways that we think that people add to the gospel and diminish its power? What are some of the things that maybe you've heard or experienced in your life? Um, we can write them down to, to see. Any thoughts? I have to? What do you mean? Hmm. 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 I have to. That's a great line. I like. Thank you. I have to. Yeah, I know that, that's a great way of, of of thinking about it. Like that, there's in some churches, maybe in our own hearts, we're constantly battling this idea that it's the amount of surrender that we have to go through to Christ in order to be accepted by Him. Um, I have to give 110% in order to be accepted. So that it's Christ plus maybe extremely right beliefs or behavior. Um, and I think this is fairly typical that we, we think that we first have to get in through continually giving our life to Jesus or asking him into our heart, or something like that, and, and that sounds, you know, sounds good because we are called to die to ourselves and pick up our cross and follow him. Um, but it's putting the cor- the cart before the or the horse before the cart, however the phrase goes. <laughs> it's reversing that order. Um, we do that because Christ first gave Himself to us. We follow him out of gratitude and thanksgiving because he's done that for us and opened up the way of new life. Um, I think another way that we might be tempted to do that is thinking that we are more holy or better off than other people because we have our doctrine down or we have everything, our ducks in a row, where we have pride, spiritual pride in our beliefs. Um, And we think that we've come to the gospel through this great inner revelation. Um, Even if we have all the ducks in a row, and and believing the best doctrine is great, but I think that in our context, it's very easy to have spiritual pride and think that we can be like the Judaizers and we know our Bibles better than everybody else, and, we, and, and, and like the Pharisees, we miss the point. Um, the, the Pharisees were constantly going through the Bible and they knew it better than anyone. They probably had most of the Old Testament memorized, the Torah memorized. And yet they were searching the Scriptures for life. And yet when, when Jesus came on the scene, they missed the point entirely. 
and they were thinking that it was being scrupulous in their mind, in their devotion, in their, in their law-keeping, that they would find life. Um, rather Paul, than, than but like Paul, who is probably the whiz kid on the block, saying, I am the chief of sinners. I had, have no regard. I was, I was going out in my zeal and murdering people, and yet Christ had pity on me. Um, so the slight, subtle thing is thinking that we are either saved by our faith or correct doctrine. And that it's the strength of our faith, it's the strength of our doctrine that saves us or really makes us well-pleasing to God, right? Um, we think, we're, we, we get obsessed with looking at, as we talked about last week briefly, at our faith itself or our, our experience of faith or our experiences in the Christian life or how much we know as the barometer for our spiritual health. And Paul, as we will say, the Gospel says that we're saved through our faith. Faith is merely the way, it's the tool, or the means by which we receive Christ. And it's the object of our faith. It's, it's being close to Him that actually matters. Um, another way that, that we see in our churches that this could be undermined is thinking that all that really matters is that you're just a loving, good person. Um, this view kind of teaches that regardless maybe of even our religion or faith in God, um, that if you're just a tolerant, loving person, that if you're open-minded that that itself is what God is looking for. And that's what makes you right. That if you're a kind, decent person who doesn't, you know, you pay your taxes, you really don't cuss or swear, and you are tolerant of other people, that that's what really what God is looking for. Um, and I think that that is very easily something that that is this subtle way of doing this. It sounds really good, but it's subtly bringing in good works again back into the equation. Um, it sounds like we're just being gracious, but we are in many ways contradicting the gospel once again by thinking we're just being, be, being loving or tolerant. Why do you think that that's another way that undermines the gospel? That just being an upright person, you know, really is just tolerant of everyone. How is that? How is that a new works righteousness? Because it's not meeting a savior. Yeah. Hmm. Mm-hmm. If it's just on us to be good and righteous, yeah. then we don't need to be saved. 
Exactly. Why would Jesus need to die for that? Um, it subtly brings in this notion that Jesus came as a teacher to teach us how to be more tolerant and open-minded. And what that does is actually that puts a new, that's just a new law. That's a new way of judging people of who's good and who's bad. It may not be the scrupulous moral law or the mosaic ceremonies, right? Where, where circumcision is that bar or keeping the Ten Commandments, but it's just being a good person. That's the, that's the new law of who's in and who's out. And it just happens to be people like me. You know what I mean? Like That's like the new standard. It's like, oh, well, I'm, I'm just this generally nice person. And people who are like me and who are nice like me are going to be the people who are the new in-group. And I think that's very easy for that new kind of moralism and tolerance to be confused for grace. That's not really grace, is it? Um, the gospel challenges everyone to be gracious because we are radically sinful and we all radically need rescue. That's why it actually opens us up to a life of grace. Not because God is just asking us to be loving and tolerant. Um, We'll never know the actual transforming power of God's grace if we're never deeply confronted with how sinful we are and how needy we are. Um, I think another way, just, just unpacking this further, just another way that probably is the first thing we think of when we think of legalism, when we think of legalistic churches. That is probably the first thing we think of um, when we hear about people coming in and just bringing in extra ceremonial laws. Um, that we impose all these different rules on people, whether it's our the right way to eat or dress or speak or schedule our time or all these new things that, that are very peculiar to our maybe a conservative, fundamentalist, liberal, or whatever it is, church, where people are very, very detailed in how we observe things. Paul says that 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 might be a form of godliness, but but he says it denies its power. Um, Where we are highly authoritarian in our churches, and it may be having a lot of extra rituals, um, I think that those are the easy churches that people can easily just like latch on to when we read something like the book of Galatians. Um, but all of these things are different ways of trying to clean ourselves up. And we, we can confuse cleaning up the outside with cleaning up the inside of our hearts. And not understand that those things have no power in themselves. Um, right, there's no, I mean, I'm not, I'm not saying we shouldn't, you know, follow the Ten Commandments. Paul is not saying that. Paul is not saying we shouldn't, you know, live for the Lord. But what he's saying is that those things in themselves have no strength to change our hearts. Those things have no power in themselves to 
keep us in the fellowship with Christ. Does that make sense? All those examples? Like we can see those things in our own hearts, how, how so easy it is to do that. Um, anything that we do to try to get rid of our own shame, anything that we do to try to get rid of our own corruption and guilt, whatever that is that isn't Christ, Paul is saying that that is slowly the Judaizers seeping into our minds. Um, Let's have a little more time left. So, let me think. So Paul's attitude towards those who distort the gospel in verses 8 through 9, he's, he's lays down, because of all what we talked about, the harshest language. Um, whether it's external to us, whether it's teachers or writers or thinkers or preachers or charismatic figures that we see around us, or even internal feelings, experiences or sensations or dreams, um, he's saying that the standard to everything, whether it's inside of us or outside of us, is this gospel message, this objective good news, um, that that is the standard for everything else that is taught. Paul says that if we should preach anything else other than this, this gospel, that he's eternally condemned. Um, and as we said before, Paul is including himself and any church authority under that bar which I think is really freeing in our day. I mean, like you can't go on and look at the news without one more abuse scandal in the church. Like it is so discouraging. I don't know how what about you, but it is like it's so heartbreaking to see all these people using their authority and their power to abuse people in so many ways, whether it's doctrine or physical abuse or verbal abuse or money scandals. But this is really freeing. Like the gospel is really freeing because it's saying no one has authority in themselves. No one has authority to change this. No one has authority to, to, to as we will later see, walk in a way that's out of step with this gospel. Um, that's the radical thing. Like, I don't think that that people like the Roman Catholic Church or maybe other churches who have a high view of authority have really grappled with. That Paul goes to Peter and says, you are walking out of the gospel. You're rejecting the gospel in your actions. That's just crazy. Like that, that someone that you can see that interaction in the early church, someone who saw the risen Lord, who was an apostle, got messed up on this. And that's just like, that's freeing. But it's also freeing because it means that it's okay for us to mess up in some ways. We're, it's, it's okay. We, we need this gospel to again and again transform our way of thinking that even if that Peter could be messed up on this, but he could, we could all go back and say, okay, what is the truth? And that's going to be our standard. That's going to hold us to each other to accountable, to be accountable to each other. And 
we don't have to fear the abuse of that authority. This, this original gospel message, this deposit, is the touchstone for judging all other truth claims from the outside and from even our own hearts. Um, this is really important, I think, this to get this order down. As we said earlier, it's the gospel to the apostles' authority. The gospel creates the church. It's not the other way around. We don't come here and say, this is what the gospel is as the church. The gospel was this divine message from heaven that God came down and he and his message and what he did gave the apostle his authority. It created the church. And that's like another gospel order that we can't mess up. We don't authorize this. We don't do anything to create the foundation other than what what Christ has laid with the apostles. Um, the apostles' authority is derived from this message. The church's existence is created by the gospel. And Paul says that even if we had a vision, this magnificent vision of an angel from heaven, he says that that deviates from this gospel message of grace, we can say that it's probably a psychological disorder that we experienced, or it's demonic. Like, we can say that. Um, anything that goes contrary to the word, to the word of the Lord, word of God, can't be trusted. Um, which, which frees us, because we don't have to worry about having visions, we don't have to worry about having massive mountaintop experiences, um, because if they're in some way contrary to God's word, we can't trust it, and there's never going to be anything that we need besides God's word. And so we don't need them. We don't, we don't need anything besides the word of the Lord. Um, our experience must be judged by the gospel. Our experience has to be changed by the gospel. And I think that's the, one of the big things, the big problems in our 21st century America. We judge everything by our experience, don't we? Like, we, our emotions are what we think reality is. Our perception is confused with reality. Um, our judgments, our convictions, our experiences are the angels showing up giving us a vision. And we don't, we don't maybe not believe that angels come down like as, you know, scientific, objective Americans believe in science. Um, we don't think we have these visions or things happening to us, but we do look at our experiences in that way, as, as if they were divine revelation themselves. And, and then we start judging people around us because they don't have the experiences we have. We, instead of judging everything by the, by the word of the gospel, um, we can easily use our experiences as this sweeping thing that slowly starts altering even, the, even what we believe the Bible says. I think we see that all around us. Um, 
We might not overtly believe in false doctrines, but we do put that premium on our experiences and our feelings, or we, you know, like, or our personality. And we think that all those things can be cut off from the gospel's call on our lives. Um, but the gospel trumps all of those things. Any, I said to stop there for today. Any questions or thoughts before we close in prayer? Comments, rebukes, rebuttals? Oh, good. All right, let's close with a word of prayer as we get ready for worship. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day, and we thank you for this day of joy and gladness that we can have so much rest in you. And, and really, we just need a whole day to sit aside to rest in this gospel again and again, and to receive from you, to stop being so busy thinking that those works are going to be the thing that make you pleasing, make us pleasing in your sight or get rid of our shame. So Lord, we ask that you would quiet our hearts, that you would quiet our spirits, allow us to receive from you as we hear your word preached, as we go through the whole worship, that your word is central, that your word is what's above us, norming us and changing our experience, allowing us to rest in you. So we ask that you would prepare us and allow us to go from here this day refreshed from the wells of of your gospel and your son. In his name we ask. Amen.